0: Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local DC area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers. Like us at DC by Foot, we're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All where your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the often scandalous and exciting bits of history both at home and around the world. Uh, we are here at the heat of August bringing you a deliciously sort of um, fun topic today. Um, I'm really excited uh, to delve into this as I know a topic very close to your heart um, but before we jump in uh, we should introduce ourselves as always I'm Becca.
2: And I'm Rebecca.
1: And together we're that no Rebecca's. Rebecca's and yes, we are here with another wonderful episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our wonderful listeners. If you are sticking with us through the dog days of summer, you're a real one because it's hot. It's terrible, but you know what? We're still out there. We're still giving tours. We still know all the best shady spots. We still know uh, how to keep you cool while dropping some hot knowledge. So uh, if you're around DC or you're looking for something to do in these hot summer uh, weeks, come join us on a tour. Big thank you, as always, too, to our patrons who literally keep us going. We wouldn't be able to do the pod without you. Um, Be sure to check out your patron-only feed for special patron-only episodes. And if you're a patron who wants to take a tour, reach out. We have discount opportunities. opportunities and free tour opportunities for our patrons depending on what level you're at so Rebecca how excited are you for this topic because I feel like this is something you've been pitching for the pod really from early on
2: I kind of have, yeah. Um, I'm very excited about this particular topic. I love this topic very much. It's very of interest to me. And, you know, we here at the pod really love women's history. So there's going to be some really interesting stuff here. And, yeah, I'm excited. It's August. It's hot out. We are, we're talking a little bit of scandal, kind of.
1: I think a little bit, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's definitely some heat to this. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Spice.
1: So we are talking about a group of ladies of women who get uh, this this term that I can't decide is kind of amazing or a little bit insulting. A
2: yeah, little of both. little of both. And that's the Dollar Princesses. So they're called Dollar Princesses. The other thing they're called is Buccaneers. Edith Wharton, who is basically the social chronicler of this era, is going to write a book called The Buccaneers. And it's a very, like, a thinly veiled, like, critique uh, of this sort of social phenomenon. It's Edith Wharton's, like spicy and fantastic and this book is it, one of her sort of lesser i think not or lesser known novels but is uh, a really biting social commentary and she's not a fan of this particular f- practice dollar princesses so off the top there's going to be some misogyny here we're going to get mad about because that's how we go and also we're going to talk about Mowitch, like Princess Bride. This is your obligatory, like Princess Bride reference. Mowitch is what brings us together today.
1: <laughs> what though essentially is in a nutshell, like when we're dropping Dollar Princess, what does that mean?
2: So Dollar Princesses, like if you've read a like historic romance novel, they all seem to be marrying dukes and earls and like occasionally like the Viscount. And if you read a lot of these novels, you might be forgiven for thinking that England is just full of titled dudes who are look good shirtless and run around without wives. Um, It's not. It's apparently not. No. (laughs) Um marrying a noble woman or noble man perhaps not as glamorous as you would be led to believe. So basically dollar princesses this is just to situate us in time. This is a phenomenon that goes off basically in the back half of the 19th century. So starts to ramp up in the 1860s and 70s, really kind of gains momentum and steam in the 1880s and 90s. And then really by the early 1900s has started to slow down. And then the First World War kind of ends all fun. But that is what we're going to talk about. Women, American women who are wealthy and marry not only British noblemen there are some continental nobility as well but we're the ones we're going to really focus on are british but they go across an ocean to meet titled dudes and marry them and the reasons for this are kind of complex and there's sort of a need that's being fulfilled here on both sides so basically this seems like you're exchanging title for money and you are but you're also this is kind of prostitution too like that's basically what you're doing we don't have titles in the united states you know noble titles hereditary titles we don't have that and so if you're in the u.s and you're very wealthy and you have all of the toys and the glamour and the ships and the things and you want to one-up your friends but they're all wealthy and have all the same things so what is one thing that you you want and that is to have a noble title in your family
1: so before people were trying to go to space, they were trying to buy themselves some titles if they had more money than cents, is what you're saying?
2: Yes. <laughs> that's, that, is, that is, yes. This is, yep, mm-hmm, that's what I'm saying. Basically, like, you're wealthy and you want your daughters to make good marriages which is not obviously unique to this time period or this level of society but what you really want is your daughter to have a like a title so she can come home to New York and impress all your hoity-toity wealthy friends with the fact that she's the countess of something and her husband like hobnobs with the king.
1: And I think we should note too that this is kind of um, booming or this practice really takes hold at a time where we're firmly in the gilded age. We have this boom of new money, this boom of families that are coming into wealth within a generation or two that aren't necessarily as rooted deeply in kind of the American aristocracy as it were, as it existed. And so there's no better way to say, okay, maybe my family hasn't been here since the 1600s, but if I can make my daughters a countess or a duchess, that's going to help butt me up. I can buy myself a little bit more status as it were. And so it's not surprising to me that this is happening at a time too, where there's this rush of new money coming onto the scene and they want to establish quickly. And what better way to do it then through your daughters, who at this time period, women have so little say in their marriages to begin with. Why not negotiate
2: it internationally? Right, exactly. There's so yes, this is um, a lot of nouveau riche, a lot of new money, a lot of industrialists and uh, people who are have been celebrated by the Gilded Age have been rewarded richly uh, for taking chances. And suddenly they have all the money. In fact, in many cases, more money than the established families like you're seeing a lot of people like the vanderbilts and the Astors are the names that everybody's heard they're coming out of the scene in new york and they have all the money they got much more money than your like old new york been here since the dawn of time sort of families and they want something for that money like this their money should buy them some sort of social cachet and it isn't because all of your fancy people, all the people who've been in New York City since the dawn of time are snubbing them. And they think that that's not really great and they don't like it. And so they're gonna go international.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I sort of love it because for me, the most famous pop culture example of this is Cora, Lady Cora from Downton Abbey. But you can really see how this is appealing from the British perspective what better way to boost this cash flow, this revenue to uphold all these trappings of quickly fading nobility than this influx of cash that comes along with these young women. So you can see how some of these men were jumping at the opportunity to not only perhaps put on their arm a young pretty thing, but it's a lot better if she comes with a few million dollars which can then allow you to maintain your fiefdom, your fiefdom, you know, in perpetuity. It's really like this fascinating for me confluence of all these things sort of happening at once that then results in this like just explosion of these arranged, I like your, you know, prostitution, but nicer sort of way of establishing these sort of um, transactions. In
2: the British side of things, you know, land isn't worth what it was worth a century earlier. So you've got the Earl of whatever or the Duke of something and they've got, like, they've got these big palaces and, frankly, mouths to feed. Like, you got to dowry all your sisters and all of, you know, you got to pay for your younger brother's commission in the army or whatever. And you've got a big palace to maintain. Now, not everybody has... The size of palaces vary, as it turns out. But you've got a lot of lot of stuff to do and people aren't working your lands the way that they had been the Industrial Revolution is happening we're not gonna go into it but you have fewer and fewer people who are making money for your aristocrats and so aristocrats are kind of falling on hard times and they need some monies because they got to keep up with the other friends right who also have money problems too they got to keep up with the the well at this point there's Queen Queen Victoria you got to keep up with all that and so they need a big influx of cash and not like a few hundred pounds. They need a lot of money and they need it like right now. And so this is, you're going to see this very easy marriage of like, there's a need and a supply. You know, it's like, it's like an economy of scale. It's very nice. And so <laughs> the, the aristocracy gets money for their states and their lifestyle. And the American families get a title and the women get screwed. That's basically how this all works out. And there's like essentially two phases to this. Like phase one is like the accident phase. that This starts out almost by accident. Women who are shunned in American society are going to go over to Europe and hook up with aristocratic entitled guys. And they marry pretty well. And then for the most part, don't really live happily ever after. And then there's phase two which is the intention phase it's become popular a lot of women in the united states are saying hey look at my friend down the street her daughter married a title i want my girl to do the same thing and so they're gonna family scheme to bring their daughters and hook them up with titles and then they really don't live happily ever after so we're gonna talk kind of about people in both phases and sometimes it should be said there are a few uh, exceptions to every rule. Some of them end okay. Like, they end up pretty happy, sure. But but for the most part, like, you've got enormous cultural differences, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, you've got, you isolating these poor women in a country with no one. Like, they're surrounded by their <laughs> husband's relatives. They're essentially forced to breed almost immediately. Like, there's a lot that's kind of goes wrong here. But the first one we're going to talk about is Jenny Jerome. And we're going to spoil her her married name for a second. We're going to pause on that for a second. Jenny Jerome, her dad's a finance guy. And she's got a couple sisters and a mom that is, like, upwardly mobile. And her dad likes to hang out with women who aren't his wife. Particularly, like, opera singers. And he's apparently, like, noted in the tabloids for doing this and it's kind of shameful and it's not really great and so her mother decides she's going to take her three girls and they're going to sail over to paris first and then eventually london and the father can come but also very much pay the bills please and (laughs) they do and her mom they flee to uh paris and then it doesn't end real great in Paris, there's a war. And so they go to uh, England, and she meets a guy named Randolph Spencer Churchill. Twist. Twist. That's a familiar name. He's familiar, doesn't it? He? He's not the heir to a title. So right off the bat, this isn't great. And he's the second son.
1: Oh, second son.
2: Yeah, I know, terrible, oh my
1: God. The only thing worse is a third or fourth. I know,
2: right? He's supposed to go into parliament. So that's going to be hit, like the House of Commons. That's going to be his jam. And uh, he, they fall in love and they get engaged after like three days. Like he pops the question and she's apparently like love at first sight. And they're totally smitten with each other. And no one else is pleased by this. Like her family's like, no, dude.
1: <laughs> this was not what we had in mind. We were thinking definitely a first son like a guy. I will also mention Jenny Jerome by all accounts was absolutely lovely and stunning and gorgeous. And you have to imagine a little bit some of these young American women and they are so young um at the time kind of dropping into an era you know this aristocracy of like inbreeding and like intermarriage and then you've got these fresh young women who come from more diverse genetic lines it must have been shocking (laughs) they're like you know because she really comes on the scene and everyone's immediately taken with how beautiful she is so I'm not surprised that Randolph you know falls in love immediately
2: Oh, yeah. He's very smitten with her. And she seems to be very smitten with him, too. And it must have all been very
1: exotic and exciting.
2: Oh, yeah. And there's also like the Americans are at this point the unknown. And, you know, there's also a big social difference here. In those days, British girls, particularly aristocratic girls, are more seen and not heard. They're not especially well educated. They're kept on their country farms. They're not really moving in society before their marriage. American girls are educated, particularly at this level. They don't have rights because, you know, this is still the Gilded Age, but they're more outgoing. They're taught this is America. Go for the gold, girl. Like you're, you can do and be a, a part of society. And so they're more forthright. They're more outspoken. They're a little bit more of a breath of fresh air. And so you can kind of see the appeal here. Uh, Randolph Churchill just falls all all crazy like for her, and they want to get married. And um, their parents are both like, No, we no, we do not want this at all. Both parents, which is amazing to me, like the Jeromes are like, no, we don't love this idea because he's not the guy who's going to get the title. So that's a thumbs down.
1: Yeah, that's not that's not we're trying to negotiate for better terms. We're looking for a better investment for our daughter.
2: (laughs) And Churchill's parents, who are the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough, So they're like pretty important. They're like, oh, Americans. Oof. No, we can't do Americans. I don't care how wealthy they are, that's just as vulgar. He made his money in in trade. <laughs> God. That sounds awful. And so both of them are basically like the both the fathers like kinda get together and are like, alright, we're gonna come up with a scheme of like things and basically they put a bunch of obstacles in their way including that the Randolph has to get elected to parliament within a certain amount of time and amazingly enough the stars align and they get married at the age of she's 20 years old on the 15th of April 1875 1874 I'm sorry and here's the thing they get married at, again 15 April their son their first son is born at the end of November <laughs> yeah I'm just saying.
1: Yeah. I believe the official line was that because she, they they have all kinds of stories about why she went into birth prematurely, that she'd had a fall, and so it was an early birth. Um, You know, they come up with these nice little cover stories. But this is ultimately, I believe, what allows both fathers to acquiesce, is that little Winston's on his way.
2: Yeah, there's a time, there's a, we got a timed element here. (laughs) Um, But yes, Winston is is their genius
1: between Jenny and uh, and her husband to just or, you know, now husband to sort of be like, you know, if we want to get married, there's one way to make it happen.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Let's let's make them think it's imminent. (laughs) And so their son is Winston like that Winston Churchill. I know we said this before on the pod, but Winston Churchill had an American mother, y'all just saying. (laughs) Okay. And their marriage doesn't end up so great. He has a drinking problem and she has numerous affairs and they have two sons very quickly and then kind of move into separate spheres. Uh, But she becomes and she's part of the reason she's sort of the first dollar princess is because she brings a lot of money to the table. Her father is going to set up her dowry financially in such a way that he leaves money for her. In those days, women, when they marry, everything they have becomes the property of their husbands. And he, her father, says, nope, this money is for my daughter, not her husband. And so he very much sets her up and is like protects the kids and and all that. But this money is for her.
1: This also essentially incentivizes keeping the marriage together, right? This is going to keep her lord husband from putting her out or putting her in an a tenuous position because she still has the money, it's an insurance policy and it's really smart of her father to do that.
2: Yeah, it's very smart. Very, very, you know, turns out her dad didn't become a financial genius for nothing, you know, yeah, right? She also becomes very much a fixture in the British society set. She is, there are very strong rumors that she has an affair with the Prince of Wales who's the future Edward VII, King of Edward VII. And we'll get back to him. He will be a constant thread throughout this pod. He really takes a liking to all these American girls. They're a breath of fresh air. They're beautiful. They're vivacious. They flirt with him. Whereas, you know, English girls are a little more scared of him and American girls are like, you know, shake his hand and like engage with him. And so he's very charmed, particularly by Jenny Jerome. They become basically allies and she becomes a, an important political figure particularly when her son moves into politics and she's really well respected and influential in british circles she is going to um, help her husband's career and then help her sons so she's a very big asset to both of their political careers
1: as exactly what i was just going to say is like it's no surprise that winston churchill becomes as successful as he does because of the past she sort of lays, the relationship she builds, the network she builds, it's going to open a lot of doors for him. And I think that one of the things he inherits from his mother is that ability to connect and network and charm in a very different way, but in a way that draws people to you. And I think that little thread of Americanness in him is part of why he becomes such a big figure and draws such a big following.
2: Yes her husband dies, uh, age 45. And so she then marries again, uh, a man who's only 16 days older than her oldest son, which is perfect. Just perfect. Uh, and is very happy with him too. Uh, so she kind of goes, she is not the norm. Sadly, uh, there's it sort of doesn't end as well for some of these, uh, women, the other founding member of the, dollar princesses club is also a woman we have mentioned before on this pod her name is consuelo is she is the daughter of a cuban sugar merchant so right off the bat that should give you a clue as to why her family is not accepted her mother is this old south money but her father is cuban and this is still like the 1870s so the family is a little discriminated against and she is going to meet a viscount who's the heir to a duke. And they like fall, they actually kind of fall in love or at least, you know, infatuation maybe. And they get engaged very fast and the marriage goes very badly. They have a... three children very quickly and then he turns out to be a big spender. His father consents to the match because in part the money that she brings to it, uh, but also because of he hopes that marriage will be a stabilizing influence for his son and will, you know, sort of curb his spend thrift ways. And that is not how it ends up happening. Uh, he ends up really running through her fortune and it's really bad. She... Eventually, Consuela Isnaga is going to be falling kind of hard times as, as a later um, sort of a dowager. Once her husband dies, she becomes sort of a matchmaker. So she will become the kind of person that introduces mothers who want to marry their young daughter to a title. So she'll provide a lot of those entrees and introductions for a fee of course because she has the social connections uh and so that's where she's gonna move uh in her later life but we've talked about her before and next up we're talking the so now we're moving into the intention phase we've the accident phase is over we're now these women are are courting this whether it's them or their mothers could be both. Yeah. Could be nine, Could be both. Um, these women are going to be courting, looking. You're looking to marry someone as a in a title.
1: This is not. I have no other option. I have to flee to Europe or I have to look abroad. This is. We are looking specifically to further and elevate. And Kazaga uh, is such a great connection to that. Like because now you've got someone on the inside who is actively encouraging and engaging in this and sort of giving a little stamp of authenticity in that I am going to do my best to make sure you don't get saddled with what I get saddled with, which is someone who's going to lose your fortune. So theoretically, if you're the father of an eligible young woman, you're now perhaps entering into this with a better guarantee that you will get some return on this investment.
2: Yes. The next one we're gonna talk about is Mary Lighter. Mary Leiter actually has a pretty strong D.C. connection, so yay, that's very exciting. Uh, she is going to be the daughter of one of the founding partners of Marshall Fields. Her father, Levi Leiter, owns a dry goods business and then partners Marshall Fields is a big department store in the Midwest. Um, she moves to D.C. as a kiddo. She lived for a while in the Blaine Mansion on DuPont Circle, which we are very familiar with, and then she moves into Leiter House, which unfortunately no longer exists, but was uh, Uh, also on DuPont Circle at uh, New Hampshire Avenue. She is going to meet a man named George Curzon, who is the heir to a uh, Lord Curzon of Kettleston. Uh, George Curzon is a politician and he's a rising star. His whole jam is he wants to be like indispensable to the powers that be. He's very ambitious, not just in the House of Lords, but he wants to be in the House of Commons. He wants to be in cabinet. He wants to be a big deal. And she's apparently immediately smitten with him. And he's kind of like not so sure. He's going to make her wait for five years. He like writes her letters. And she like, writes five letters to every one of his. And she's like, What are you doing? Why do you let's let's talk? I miss you. And he's like, Yeah, whatever. Do it. Thanks.
1: Also, five years in this era for marriage is insane. And for a young woman, especially of Lighter's background, every year you lose is value off your market rates. And if he breaks it off or doesn't commit, She has now lost really valuable time. And Leiter was very connected in American society. She was very good friends with a woman we've talked about, Frances Folsom Cleveland. They were best friends, bosom friends. They wrote each other constantly. Leiter was quite popular in the social scene here. So it's not that there weren't other options, but five years of this guy stringing her along is really kind of bonkers because it's the difference of 20 and 25. It's the difference of, you know, 22 and 27 and that might as well be 22 and 40 right
2: and she like wants nothing to do with any other dudes like it's not like she's not married meeting other men like she's in society her best friend is the first lady she's got connections there are other dudes who are like hey and she's like no not interested she like spends her time pining away for this guy who's like just doesn't have time for her and it's sad. And eventually he does give him some credit. He does marry her and decides that he's falls in love with her and she becomes indispensable to him uh, and all that. They have three daughters together. And he really wants a son, so there are they. There's at least one miscarriage, probably some other gynecological issues, and partly, probably due to that, she's going to suffer ill health and dies at 36. However, before she does, her husband is all first of all elevated to a marquessat, so he becomes the Marquis Curzon, and he becomes the Viceroy of India, which means she's Viceran. Which is definitely a title I want. Uh, she basically the highest ranking American, as it turns, highest, the official highest title in the Indian emperor that a empire that a woman could hold, which is very exciting. Fancy. I know it's very fancy. Um, she becomes kind of a thing, and. Um, unfortunately she doesn't live very long he makes her a big tomb they're buried together it's he was very sincere in his because finally he woke up to the fact that he was uh, she's actually was very helpful to him politically and it ends up okay for her i'll give her that
1: i guess minus dying at 36 but it's a, the marriage is a good one a success a success yes. a good match um other other than the fact that she likely uh, is in such bad health. I will note, too, that they get married in D.C. Uh, they actually marry at St. John's Episcopal Church, which, if you've been to the city, is right literally right across H Street from the White House and right off of Lafayette Square. So this is how significant she and her family are. They get married at what is known as the Church of Presidents because pretty much every president has been there. I always think this is so tragic, though, with her death so young. And because it was otherwise so successful they made such a good partnership it's really such a shame that she doesn't have a chance to enjoy that i know long term
2: yeah she has three daughters one of her daughters has a if everyone's seen the crown her her youngest daughter marries the equerry to king edward the eighth the sort of disgraced duke of windsor there is a bit part in the crown that's supposed to be her youngest daughter so it's very exciting Next, we're going to talk about Frances Work, who you've never heard of. Frances Ellen Work is in New York City. Her father is a stockbroker protege of Cornelius Vanderbilt, who we have definitely talked about. Her family is, by this time, her family's kind of arrived. She's considered to be one of the 400, if you've heard of Mrs. Astor's 400. She's supposed to be one of the best families, you know, in New York. Uh, She's a, a smashing success in Newport as one does and friends with the Vanderbilts and all that stuff. She is going to marry uh, the honorable James Boothby Burke Roche who would later become heir he's heir to a, a baronetcy Baron Fermoy. They have really it doesn't work out really doesn't work out. They have four kids in three years oh. and then yeah, oh twins. yeah Bill. No, no thanks. Um, They, like, literally, she leaves him the year after their fourth, their last kids are born. I'm out. Peace. He is not kind to her and uh, spends all of her money. And they, in fact, when they get divorced, she gets married happily a second time, but that doesn't go well with her family either. Her dad, when he dies, will leave money to her, but, like, deliberately, like, in his will, actually says, I leave no money to my erstwhile son in law. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> she made a bad choice the first time around. Uh, she, happily, the second time, even though her family is not supportive, she kind of marries someone they consider to be below her station. But uh, the reason Francis' work is kind of cool. Her granddaughter, eventually, Francis Roche, is named for her. She's now named Francis Shand, later named Francis Shand Kidd, uh, and she becomes the mother of Princess Diana. So, Diana, actually, her middle name is Francis. Diana Francis. Ooh. So there we go. So she actually is the great-great-grandmother of the future king. So there we go. Works out for her, I guess.
1: That's kind of ideally what I think the goal was for so many of these families, right? Is that eventually if you married in then a generation or two, you might find yourself intersecting into the royal family. And so that's kind of ideally the dream, I think, uh, with all of this. This also is just a good example too of just how intertwined American family lines are with the British nobility because through this line it connects Diana and you know her children to a number of sort of Americans on the other kind of work side so you know we have so much intermingling
2: in between and she also and I found this to be fascinating so she is not only the great grandmother of Princess Diana but also through another one of her children the great grandmother of Oliver Platt the actor. Who I love. I know. Uh, I
1: just convinced everyone in my family to binge the bear, which Oliver Platt is a recurring uh, character on. Uh, Love it. That's amazing. So he was related to Princess Diana, like third cousins or
2: something. (laughs) And the next one we're going to talk about is Alice Thaw. And Becca, where have we heard this name before? Oh
1: my gosh. (laughs) We have heard this name because she is related her brother is a guy named Harry Thaw who as you may remember from past episodes was married to a former showgirl Evelyn Nesbitt and it is Harry Thaw who murders Stanford White the architect and uh, that's all we'll say about that we have an episode on what was the crime of the century this was the big scandal of the early 20th century so Alice is the sister of this somewhat not quite right in the head railroad tycoon harry thaw so um she comes already from a very interesting familial background
2: yeah not great so alice thaw is harry thaw's sister they have other half siblings from her his father's been married like she they're the product of the second wife And there's uh, her father's got a lot of money. He owns in part uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. He was considered one of the hundred wealthiest Americans. So she's in unimaginable wealth. So, yeah, it's that family though. Harry Thaw, good times. I feel like we're vibing with so many of our previous episodes here. Like we talked about Alice Vanderbilt Mm -hmm. Belmont, who will come up again. Harry Thaw and Evelyn Nesbitt. Uh, we've also done an episode about Winston Churchill back in the early days. So there's like a lot we've done, A we've kind of nibbled around the edges of this a bit.
1: This is just intersecting with so many things we've talked about, especially in this period. Cause all of these people are running in the same circles. When you're this wealthy in this era, you're overlapping.
2: So she meets a friend of her brother's, which already should, if you've listened to the Evelyn Nesbit episode, you should be very wary of her brother and any of his friends. In 1903, his name is George Seymour, Earl of Yarmouth. So he's Earl, he's heir to a Marquisate. He's friends with her brother, and he's an amateur actor. Yay. <laughs> um, basically, the way that this kind of goes down is George Seymour meets Harry Thaw on a train at some point in Europe, and they become best friends. And then at some point, he says, Harry Thaw basically says, Hey, I have an unmarried sister, and we got a lot of money. And George Seymour comes over to DC to visit and just happens to stay with her mother at their rented house, yes, for two weeks. And they stay on Lafayette Square, like the Thaws are very wealthy. So they're literally a block from the White House for two weeks, and wouldn't you know it, these two eligible young people, well, I don't know if they fall in love, but they decide to get married.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. They're, they're, no, those things can, are not always mutually exclusive, but right. can be.
2: So, this happens in January. They announce the engagement in February and they're married at the end of April. And then, before they're married, however, he's gonna extort her mother on the wedding day. For more money. Basically, it becomes very clear that he has a very strong financial motive to get married, i.e., he's in a lot of debt. And so somebody comes over and basically says, Hey, you need to start paying off your debts. And he's like, Well, I'm about to get married. And the guy's like, Yeah, we're going to need some down payment on that. And so on the day of his wedding, he basically sits down with his soon to be mother in law and says, Yeah, I'm going to need a bigger dowry. Or this wedding isn't happening. And he does this while his future bride is in the church. She's dressed up, ready to go. The guests are there. And he's like, yeah. If we're going to do this, I'm going to need more money. So he like extorts her, which is insane. It's terrible. (sighs) I feel so bad for her. I mean, I feel bad for all of these young women to varying degrees. But particularly this one. Like, this just is heard.
1: I, I think it's worth noting, you know, we're, we're calling them women and they are, but they are young women. These women are most of them at the time of their marriage, 19, 20, 21. Most of them had just made their debuts within the year or two before this marriage. So these um, kind of arranged marriages or pro- almost if not arranged sort of massaged or negotiated marriages these are very very young women many of them are not worldly they are especially because of their class and the time period while educated in a traditional sense they're not worldly wise and so so many of these women see a title they see the excitement and exoticism of this you know wonderful land. And we should remember by the late 19th century, early 20th century, we are so enamored with England and Europe, right? It's none of this. We fought a war to get away from you guys. It is, we want to be just like you. And so, so many of these women, I don't want to say duped or, you know, I don't think they're tricked into this, but you just feel for them because they don't understand necessarily, or I think fully what life is going to be like in this very rigid society that is different from America. Many of these men that have very different expectations about what this marriage is about. And anytime you have, I think wealth and power as many of these men did, even these guys who are the third, fourth heir, they are part of the aristocracy. They have all the power and these women have none. And in a marriage that ends up resulting in some very challenging and often unsafe situations.
2: And it also like these men need money. And so there is a need on their parts, but they're also men too. And so once they have the money, there is nothing else that their wife or their wife's family can do. Legally at this point, the wife is the the property. Her, her, All of her interests, all of her money, all become the property of her husband. And so some of these men marry for less than good reasons. They have money of their own. And what they're going to do with these women is, the intention is they're going to head back to England, Britain. And I feel like a lot of these women thought, oh, we'll live in London and it'll be fabulous and I'll hobnob with the queen. And then they end up at this country estate where they know no one. Yeah, And their husband is less than interested in them. And in many cases, their husband already has outside interests, like other women, perhaps. Not always, but in a lot of cases. But many. But many cases. And the husbands are like, yeah, listen, I'm not really that interested in what you do. Go
1: do your thing. You know, putter, putter around the estate. Enjoy the castle. Walk on the moors. What do I care? You know? And it is, if you had come of age, as many of these young women did, in New York City, in Newport, in Philadelphia, in Boston, and were used to a lively social scene, unless you were Jenny Jerome, there's just not a lot of that. And she really kind of is able to force her, not force her way in, but make her way into a more thriving social scene, that's not the case for most of these women. As you said, they're so isolated geographically in many ways, and then certainly emotionally and financially.
2: And so it does not end great for Alice Thaw. Alice Thaw marries, becomes the Countess, and then it goes badly very quickly. He spends all of her, a lot of her money, and there's rumors of what what was called at the time ill-treatment, which could be seen as a number of different things it could be just garden variety infidelity it could be uh neglect but it also could also be that he hit her and there's not like i'm not gonna suggest that he did but it also doesn't seem like he was that nice to her either um well and abuse takes many forms including emotional and it certainly
1: seems based on the historical record and even what's rumored and hinted at in papers that he is not nice to her at the very least and that can I think go on a very long spectrum of what that manifested as but that he's not a nice man and he's not nice to her
2: right and there's like you can see like this isn't the only time in history where there have been arranged marriages, to be sure. And there are a lot of times where couples may not may not be a passionate love match, but they can at least, like, roll along together and, like, be kind to each other. This does not seem to be what his jam is. He seems to be either completely uninterested in her or outright cruel. And after less than five years, the marriage is going to get annulled. And there aren't too many ways to get a marriage annulled. So the one that they go with is non-consummation. They haven't had kids, so they just, who knows if it's true or not, no one says, but all of her financial interests are returned to her. So he basically walks away with nothing. That's how terrible he was to her. Her ex-husband is going to succeed to his title. It's his titles after their death, he dies and having never remarried or had any children. So there's also the implication that he could have been homosexual, too. There's also a hint of that, too. It's not clear.
1: I do want to note, too, that a number of these women do have the opportunity to do something that was a lot harder for women in similar situations, but not of the same class and money and status. And that is even try to get an annulment or divorce. That's something that many, many, many of their peers and other socioeconomic classes cannot even pursue because it was costly. You had to have lawyers. You had to be able to have access to this system that was very closed off, this judicial system. And then you had to prove in court a lot of things, which is challenging to do. And the fact that she is able to get all of her money, Alice's money, back to her makes me believe that there had to be ample evidence of not just non consummation, but that they didn't want anything else getting out about what this marriage was like, Um, that he and his lawyers were willing to agree to this.
2: Yeah, that gives me the idea that there was something real bad that went down there.
1: But that a number of these women actually sue for divorce and get it or are able to sue for abandonment. That makes them a little unique and a big part of that is their class and status and that is one way in which i think they're different from other marriages of the time which maybe come with less money but are still no less negotiated Uh, women have so little say in who they marry regardless of social class at this time but the fact that a number of these women we've talked about have been able to get a hearing before a judge is so unique and interesting to me yes
2: yes um, and the last one we're going to talk about, so actually it ends okay, by the way, I should close the book on Alice Thought It ends okay for her. She remarries, has a couple kids and seems to end her life in Massachusetts quite happily with her new husband. Um, the last one we're going to talk about is also someone we've mar- mentioned before, Consuelo Vanderbilt. The companion to her, we we'll listened listen to the Alva Vanderbilt Belmont episode we did a while back. Um, she's sort of the poster child for the dollar princesses. She's bullied into this marriage by her mother. She's going to marry a duke. In fact, the first cousin of Winston Churchill, and they become friends, which is nice. Her husband is, he's, Her age she's about five or six years older, but she's only 18. She wants to marry somebody else. And because of her wealth, because of her connections, because she's marrying a Duke, she's going to be on the front page of every newspaper. And so there's commentary about everything there's people that comment about the underwear she's going to be wearing when she walks down the aisle and how much her trousseau is costing and like just really invasive and terrible things, which would be horrible even if she was in love with the guy. Yeah. But she's not. And it becomes real clear, real fast that not like you can't hide their level of like disinterest in each other.
1: And this is the ultimate, I think, example of these mothers just pushing and pushing and pushing, there are rumors that her mother threatened to take her own life if Consuelo wouldn't do this. So I can't imagine being 18 and having sort of the burden of not just you have to do this for our family, for the good of the family name, you have to do this to bring honor to us, but also I might take my own life if you don't marry this man that you clearly don't like and you just have to be okay with the fact that people are talking about you in the paper and speculating about your undergarments it's it's really feels like she has no protector she has nobody looking out for her
2: no and her mother like we talked about in the the pod about her mother her mother is fearsome like really like uh, almost frightening and uh poor consuelo is bullied into this marriage and the press starts to turn on them it becomes clear that neither of them are particularly interested in this and there are all kinds of cartoons of Consuela walking down the aisle in chains or with her mother as like a puppeteer and her husband-to-be none of his family come over the only person that sails over to stand next to him is his bestie stands as his best man so the entire church is her mother's social friends and this is a duke like he's got some connections and none of them bother to come it couldn't be any more obvious that he's just doing this
1: and he's doing it for what is today believed to be about $90 million.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. In today's money, the mm-hmm.
1: equivalent of $90 million. So if you're asking yourself, you're listening to this and going like, why would, why would he do it? You know, she does it because she's so obedient to her intimidating mother. He does it because, you know, I don't, I don't care where you're at. $90 million back then, about $3 million, but uh, $90 million in today's money. That's a lot of money. And he knows he can set himself and and any heirs up in perpetuity with that. He will never have to worry about his lands or his property ever again with that kind of money, theoretically.
2: And he also knows that if he has children, like his heirs will be her kids, obviously, too. And her father will make sure to provide for his grandchildren. So he's doing this with dollar signs in mind massive 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 dollars.
1: dollars of all the dowries we're talking about nothing i think really comes close to what the vanderbilts are putting up it
2: just i feel so bad for her basically he's gonna inform her on their honeymoon that like he married her for the money and because he needs an heir so bank account and womb and that he's got a woman at home that he's in love with and is not planning to stop seeing and luckily, seemingly, I think for both of them, they have two sons very fast and then lead separate lives. And they most of their 25-year marriage, they are barely in touch with each other. They do not communicate. It does not seem to have gone very well. Uh, it is a very, very ill-fitting uh, match. She wants to run away with she had been wanting to marry somebody else when she was forced to marry the duke she resumes her interest in him the duke never leaves the woman that he had been in love with and so they have this sham of a marriage that goes on and it really like this press coverage really exposes the cruelty of this that these women are being sent across an ocean to basically be broodmares for the patriarchy essentially and they're leading these sad isolated lives with husbands that are not particularly kind to them and so Consuelo vanderbilt is important because she's she her fame sort of shines a light on a lot of this practice and sort of turns a lot of people thinking ah eh, this isn't really great and it doesn't this make is, us
1: look good as this, a country it doesn't make the wealthy look good you know if when when you you can see how families got caught up in this, but if you're kind of coming into wealth at this time and you're seeing this negative press coverage, you're going this doesn't make doesn't make our people look good, right It doesn't make our class look good, and maybe there's a better ish way forward right. I won't say great, but better
2: right. And what sort of ends this, this sort of peters out towards the, is really the high point, she marries in 1895, and then the next 10 years, the practice sort of starts to peter out. What's going to end it? First of all, a couple of different things. The growing women's movement in both countries, the peers in England start taking on like business propositions. It becomes less taboo for them to have some sort of business interest kind of a consultancy would probably would be what we would call it today, some kind of interest in like the railroad or whatever it is. There's also the future king and then eventual King Edward VII is a big fan of Americans. He really promotes a lot of these marriages, but his son is the complete opposite. He doesn't approve, not our kind, dear. Uh, and so with uh, Edward VII's death in 1910, his son exceeds and the marriages kind of stop. And then World War I happens and everything goes to hell. But, you know, that's just kind of how that goes. But it sort of peters out a little faster and we're sort of ending the Edwardian age and moving into the First World War. But an estimated $25 billion is brought by American dollar princesses and fed into the British economy. Up to a third of the House of Lords marry Americans with money. Like it's an astonishing imprint on their society and it also is going to bring americans to sort of social parity with their british counterparts a lot of this had started out because we sort of look to britain and sort of enthrall with the british and the aristocracy by this time because partly because so many americans have married into this the british are there they are socializing here they're coming to newport they're coming to new york they're coming to the US to socialize so it becomes more an equal relationship.
1: Yeah, like a complete realignment of mankind and society. This it's so fascinating to me. It's so much money. It is a mind-boggling amount of money that flows from the US to Britain through these marriages. And the way in which that money also changes, Britain, is fascinating to me. The way in which it it changes or starts to shift just the idea of working for your money or earning money, you know, through business ventures and pursuits and investments, the way in which they start rethinking this idea of being land rich and cash poor. That titles are great, but they're not everything. And we're going to have to do some things to bring money in. And yeah, it's it's a generation of women from this social class that are the fuel to this this massive change.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. It's such an, an interesting social moment. And you're seeing these intersections of so many different things. And it bears dividends. Like, a lot of these women we mentioned, their great-great-whatever-grandsons have the title today. Obviously, we talked about Princess Diana's great-grandmother, like... It it did what it did and it moved a lot of things forward in some sort of interesting ways.
1: Yeah, and I do think just the the light it shines on these kinds of marriages towards the end and the way in which, uh, along with the burgeoning women's movement as well, but sort of this idea where we start going, look, look at how unhappy all these women are. Look at how these marriages are such shams. Let's maybe perhaps find a way in which to get married that allows a little bit of Autonomy and independence when choosing someone to wed your life to. It's just really, really interesting. It's a fascinating time. And I think it's easy to kind of go poor little rich girls when you hear about these, but some of these women go through really tragic and terrible circumstances as a result of these marriages fascinating I love it it's so interesting to me I am an Americanist through and through you know that if you listen to the pod but I find just the kind of merging and melding of our worlds through these marriages just really interesting and it really is you you talked about this beginning but it really does pop up so much I think in historical fiction and everything too so it's fun to demystify it a little
2: bit Yes, and there's so many different people we've talked about or will talk about or can talk about like there's so many different connections to like different people who are prominent in different ways. So it's really a a great intersection of a lot of different things.
1: Yeah, and certainly some of these marriages happen outside of Britain, too. There are families that will marry into um, monarchies and aristocracies and other other European nations as well. Um, So it's Mm -hmm. certainly not just unique to this. This was so great. Thank you, Rebecca, for this episode. (laughs)
2: yay thank you guys for coming along with us Uh, as always check us out on the socials Uh, email us tourguidetellall at gmail.com we're on Facebook and the Twitters and the Instagrams Uh, and if you have pod topics we'd love to hear them if you have feedback we'd love to hear that too and um, yeah let us know what you think let us know what you want to hear about and see you next time bye guys thank you so much